Mr. Saturday dance Heard the crowd at the floor Couldn't bear it without you Don't get around much anymore Hi everyone and welcome to On Location. This is Jared Cowan. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I hope you're all doing well, all things considered. A few weeks ago we were going to try and record our first episode On Location, our first episode back since the pandemic started. And just as we were getting ready to do it, um, the cases of COVID-19 started spiking again here in Los Angeles. And though we were going to take all the necessary precautions like mask wearing, social distancing, and sanitizing microphones, we just decided that it wasn't worth the risk of getting people together. So we nixed it, uh, but we certainly have every intention of getting back to that episode as soon as we're able. I'm really excited to do it, um, and we'll bring it to you as soon as we can. Now, that being the case, I wanted to bring you another episode for which I asked location professionals from around the world to send in stories about some of the locations that have made impressions on their careers. And I'll be honest, though, producing this episode was partly done out of the need to keep my sanity intact and making stuff and putting it out into the world helps me do that. So uh, I thought I'd move ahead and do another one of these. On this episode, you're going to hear from location managers based in Los Angeles, New York, Michigan, Athens, Greece, uh, and Florida. Actually, this episode is somewhat Florida-centric, and I want to thank my guest Stacy McGillis for that. She's based in Florida, and I reached out to her for some recommendations for colleagues in Florida, and one person led to the next, and uh, we ended up with four submissions from the Sunshine State. So I'm uh, looking forward to having you all hear, hear those stories. I want to start off, though, with a location manager who's become a friend of mine. I interviewed Robert Folks on a previous episode about the locations from Karin Kusama's Destroyer, which starred Nicole Kidman and shot here in Los Angeles. Robert's been very supportive of the work we do. He even came along on one of my San Fernando Valley film tours and provided some personal anecdotes to everybody on the bus when we drove by locations from a couple of the films he's worked on. Now, Robert was also recently invited to join the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, along with a handful of other location professionals. So congratulations, Robert, for that incredible honor, and I'll let him take it away. Enjoy, everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Robert Folks, location manager. Uh, thank you, Jared Cowan, for continuing to champion the art of uh, location managing and location scouting, uh, even during this uh, pandemic. Um, a little bit of background on me. I was a uh, location manager on some films uh, of note recently, La La Land, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, uh, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Those are some of the more well-known ones of my recent past, uh, but I've been doing this um, a long time, maybe too long. <laughs> no, but I still love it. I've uh, been doing this since, uh, woof, 1989 was my first film uh, that I worked on, TV show, and then uh, first my first uh, feature film was Terminator 2, Judgment Day. That was quite an experience. But yeah, I could probably come up with all sorts of uh, favorite locations throughout uh, my working career. But um, one that always jumps out at me, not necessarily a favorite location, although it did work great for the movie. It's favorite also in the way that it unfolded um, for me and the production. 
quick background. Um, well, it's funny. Both of these experiences, one of my least favorite experiences on a location and one of my favorites, uh, both involve hotels out of state, out of uh, California, Los Angeles. I was on a uh, remake of a movie called Red Dawn, which... Uh, you may or may not have seen. Not many people did, uh, but I was working on that in Detroit. I was staying in a, uh, in a, you know, our production was put up in a fancy hotel outside of uh, Detroit in a uh, city called Troy, north of Detroit. And uh, one night I was walking to my car and uh, I was mugged uh, pretty badly. I got hit on the side of the head and my phone and my wallet stolen uh, while I was sitting in my car didn't know what hit me. Next thing I know, I'm waking up in a hospital and my wife's flying out from LA to see me. Anyway, long story short, that's actually the bad experience at the hotel. <laughs> Tried to keep working. I read Don for a little while, just was shaken up and uh, had MRIs on my, everything passed. I was okay, but it was uh, quite an, quite a, quite an on-location experience. Anyway, I sort of got, I stayed on Red Dawn for a while, got enticed to head to um, Iowa and work on a film with a line producer I'd worked with before and a director who really wanted me to come work on the film. And uh, I ended up leaving Red Dawn uh, before they started shooting. And I flew to Des Moines working on a uh, film. This is 2010, by the way, I believe, 2010. Worked on a film called uh, Cedar Rapids with Miguel Arteta directing uh, may have seen it, uh, kind of an underseen comedy, good one to rent. If you're in the mood for a good comedy, you may have missed. Ed Helms, Anne Heche, John C. Riley starred in it. Uh, but, uh, we've, uh, st the main location in the, uh, in the movie was a holodome hotel where Ed Helms's character, an insurance salesman, was going to a convention and it was in a holodome hotel the way it was written in Cedar Rapids. A holodome hotel, they still have some of them around the country, but they're dwindling in numbers. Uh, but a holodome, uh, if you don't know, is a type of hotel that has a big indoor covered space around the room, hallways that sort of overlook a central area, usually featuring a swimming pool in the courtyard. So it's a covered swimming pool, really interesting look to the hotel, very specific, um, kind of a cool look. It was very specific what we wanted. And we found the one in, we wanted in, De in um, sorry, in the, in Des Moines, I was going to say Detroit, Des Moines, we found the holodome we wanted. We knew we were going to do some filming in Cedar Rapids. We wanted to be in Iowa. But uh, we found the perfect holodome uh, in uh, Des Moines. And we uh, scouted all the locations. We we're going to do a few, few days in Cedar Rapids, but we were all based in Iowa, had our production offices um, four weeks from shooting. I had all my uh, local assistants hired and Almost all the locations, we were down to the last two out of whatever it was, 30 locations, four weeks from shooting. Suddenly a scandal breaks out in the Iowa Film Commission office, and the governor decides to immediately freeze all tax incentives for any productions, even ones that are happening in the state. That went on to be a big to-do, and the Iowa Film Office went away for a while, and people were convicted on some uh, shenanigans going on with the... Uh, film office that had nothing to do with our shoot, but we were caught in the crossfire of, of starting our show. And the governor just said, this is, this is not working. This system of in, enticing uh, productions to Iowa and he immediately froze everything. Um, anyway, Fox Searchlight came to us, sat us all down and said, we have to make this movie somewhere other than Iowa. And we, <laughs> you have four weeks to find all of the locations somewhere else in a different tax incentive state 
that uh, that they could still make the movie in in a in the same or similar budget and uh, good luck. <laughs> so we um, I immediately. Uh, with uh, made a, got a map and made a list of all the holodomes. We had such a specific location that all had to start with that as our central location. So uh, Michigan was big at the time. Uh, uh, <laughs> back in Michigan again. Michigan um, was big with tax incentives at the time. So uh, made a map of all the existing holodomes. Got some pictures off the internet of what they look like. We rented a car. Uh, myself, production designer, line producer, cinematographer director miguel we all got on a rental car mapped out two or three days to go visit all of these all over michigan tried to concentrate on kind of the lower half of michigan so we were only gone for a couple days a few days anyway so we drive all around michigan looking at these none of them felt right or they weren't available we needed it for at least a few weeks of filming if not more with prep and strike uh, added on to that and they needed to cooperate for quite a bit of filming inside this hotel so we i can't remember how many we visited but we went at least to half a dozen if not up to 10 of these driving all over was down to one of the last ones in ann arbor michigan and we really wanted this one to work we hoped it would work we drive up, um, I think I was just with the designer at the time, uh, in this particular, just driving up to these, this hotel. We drive up, it looked great from the outside. We walk in, it looked vacant. I was like, oh my God, it's a location manager. That was brilliant. It still looked perfect for the movie, but there were no people around. And, uh, I walk, I walk right in. We were so excited when I first walked in and saw, saw it that I went, oh my God, and, and it's vacant. <laughs> There's nobody here. And this, this, this guy kind of looks out from behind the, the door at the front desk and says, no, we're, we're open. What are you talking about? He was like, I had no idea why I was saying that. Anyway, the hotel ended up being, it was in, about to be renovated. It was partially being renovated. Some of the areas were off limits, but they had maybe two thirds of it closed off to guests. And it was the perfect situation for that long of a shoot. And um, we ended up being able to make a deal with this place. Uh, some people even stayed in the hotel because there was so much vacancy, so many vacancies in the in the hotel. We relocated, immediately got a production office. Uh, Miguel ended up, uh, the director ended up liking it even more than the one in Des Moines. It actually was icing on the cake because we, we ultimately, after all is said and done, were able to pull off more shots at more times of day than we would have been in the uh, active hotel in Des Moines. So it worked out great. But an amazing location experience of us all getting together, buckling down, going to a whole new town. We only ended up having to push a week. If I remember, I immediately had to find all new local crew uh, for my team, local crew for everybody, all the departments, scout all the locations within two or three weeks, and still shoot the, uh, get the movie on track with, I think we only pushed a week, which was amazing. All of that pulled off in a whole different city in a whole different state um, with three or four weeks' notice. The hotel, if anyone ever wants to visit there in Ann Arbor, it's called the Wyndham Garden Hotel. At the time, it was the Clarion. But if you see Cedar Rapids and uh, you want to check out that hotel and uh, see how well it worked in the movie as the central location for the movie, check it out. Uh, wow, I could tell more stories, but I think my time is up. Again, thanks, Jared Cowan, for... Uh, Carrying the mantle, is that the phrase? Carrying the torch for uh, location managers and uh, singing our praises and getting the word out there what we do. Uh, take care, everybody. Wear your mask. Be safe. Thanks, Robert Folks. Out. Hi, my name is Stacy McGillis. I am a location manager and scout for features, television series, and commercials. 
I'm based in Central Florida. Uh, some of the shows that I have managed or worked on are uh, Disney's Tomorrowland, the Florida portion of Guardians of the Galaxy, The Infiltrator, Tupac's All Eyes on Me, The Florida Project, and most recently the upcoming Disney Plus series, The Right Stuff, just to name a few. My favorite location. Oh man, what a tough question. Uh, I would have to say that my favorite location is uh, NASA and the Kennedy Space Center, which is on the space coast of Florida, specifically the Vehicle Assembly Building and uh, Launch Complex 39A. I personally use them in the Guardians of the Galaxy, Tomorrowland, and the right stuff, but they've been used many, many times in other films and television series like Armageddon, From the Earth to the Moon, etc., there, this place is important because it's, it's so unique. It's the only place in the world where you can film on an actual launch pad or inside a building that they build space shuttles and rockets. It, it's just a, a fantastic historical place that, uh, has, it, it's rooted in our history here in the United States. And it was the beginning of the space program. Everything out there is just so fantastic. Um, just some fun facts. The first launch from Launch Complex 39A was November 9th, 1967. It was a Saturn V rocket, and the launch pad is actually still active. And the Vehicle Assembly Building is one of the largest buildings on Earth by volume, and it is the largest single-story building in the world. And what's really cool about it is it can actually create its own atmosphere. So at times, there's literally clouds inside of it, and it's been known to rain, which is just crazy. Another thing that's really cool um, about this particular location is that it's just not accessible generally to the public and requires special clearance to scout and shoot. And it, it's always a, a really cool and special experience to be able to film there, bring the crew there. And um, it, it takes a little bit of work to get everybody out there figuring out the logistics and whatnot, but it, it, it's so worth it. And um, it, it's just fantastic. So I would say that out of the places that I've filmed and, and maybe, you know, any place that this would, would be my favorite location. It has a special place in my heart and it, it's just a beautiful place to be. This is Dimitris Halgiadakis from Greece. I'm based in Athens and have been working as location manager and fixer for 20 years. I have been very lucky to be offered the opportunity to work as a fixer in a small Danish film back in 2001, shot on location in Crete, and since then, I have worked in numerous feature films and hundreds of commercials. Having worked in a very broad spectrum of production, from local alternative gems like Elle, the, that premiere in Sundance, Bollywood blockbusters like Tashan and Hollywood big hits like Justice League, I have summoned many different experiences on the theme of working on location. So, here I am, back in 2015, afternoon. I'm sitting in this posh hotel lobby with two ladies in front of me, the Italian-born director of production, who had just arrived from London, and my Greek producer. They both stare at me and tell me in one voice, Dimitri, we have a problem. It is the first day of working on location for the feature film Jason Bourne. The script describes Athens in riots and the protagonist is hiding in plain sight in this mess. Pre-production had lasted for a year, since the script was uh, written especially for Athens locations. Key part in these locations was Athens Syndagma Square, the major square of the city, right across the parliament, where all the riots and the clashes have taken place due to the austerity measures of the government. 
The script describes exactly that. Even during scouting, with my English colleagues, we had to wait for a while in a rooftop restaurant over the square until some clashes between the protesters and the police cooled down. That was more or less ordinary back then. The plan was to shoot on two consecutive nights, footage of Syndagma Square from both ground and air and do LiDAR scanning as well of the whole area. Of course, all the necessary permits have been obtained in advance and all the authorities we would interact with were officially informed. But never underestimate the human factor. It is November the 16th, and the vice mayor of the municipality of Athens, a young and prominent politician who was aiming for a place at the central government, had the epiphany of decorating the trees of Syndagma Square with hundreds of bulbs as Christmas decoration and be the first throughout Europe to turn them on. No one expected that or have even been informed of that option. Lighting up the Christmas tree have been a big issue in Athens for the wrong reasons the past years. In 2008 riots that erupted after a policeman shot a 15-year-old kid, the Christmas tree in Syndagon Square have been engulfed in flames. So after that incident, no trees were being lit there until mid-December. But no, sir, not that year. Not the year we wanted to shoot JB. Syndagma Square was brilliantly lit from November the 16th. A sense of panic occurred. Next day, I called the municipality to find out what was happening and to my frustration, nothing seemed possible to alternate the Christmas lit nightscape of the square until mid-January. Catastrophe. Uh, but then again, the human factor reoccurred. My wife proposed me to contact directly a fellow mother from our kid's school who happened to be at the local council. Guess what? She knew personally the vice mayor, made a phone call, and within two hours, a window of two nights without decorative lighting appeared. Just brilliant. So every time I cross Syndagma Square, I look at the trees. I'm Samson Jacobson, a location manager based in New York City, working primarily in film with credits on movies such as Good Time, If Beale Street Could Talk, Uncut Gems, Inside Lewin Davis, The Greatest Showman, and the upcoming COVID-delayed In the Heights. One story I'd like to share is about the connective tissue that I've found throughout my career, and specifically where my work on one of my favorite locations on my favorite project benefited my work on a future favorite project. My favorite location to have worked on was the exterior gaslight location for Inside Lewin Davis, a film by Joel and Ethan Cohen shot in the early part of 2012. This project holds a very special place in my heart because it's where I was introduced to friends and colleagues who had changed my life and entrusted me the responsibilities that came with promotions. The set was the exterior street of the defunct landmark village nightclub, The Gaslight, that we recreated with heavy set dressing. The street location was East 9th Street between 1st Avenue and Avenue A, and our set was in the middle of the block centered around a since-closed restaurant called Zepep. Our goal was to dress the entire street as 1960s Greenwich Village for multiple looks in both directions for various daytime and nighttime scenes. My bosses, Kat Donahue and Tyson Bidner, made the contract for the main restaurant we were dressing and then tasked me with establishing contact and contracting with the 20 or so other neighboring businesses and buildings for lighting and dressing. Most of the businesses and the buildings around the set cleared and signed rather quickly, and it kind of felt like it was all a little too easy. But as we progressed towards full participation and the shoot day was coming up on the schedule, we had two unsigned lighting and set dressing positions that were right on top of the set. 
I remember being terrified of failing on my first promotion that I wasn't going to get these positions because I was having a hard time establishing contact with the landlord. The secretary would begrudgingly take my calls and write messages, which I assumed she was just throwing away. I wasn't sure what to do, so right as I'm about to head to their office, I get a call from a man named Izzy, the landlord returning my numerous phone calls. He's a tough but young landlord, has no time for jokes or games, and only a few minutes strictly for business. I feared he would make the cost unreasonable as he kept saying things like, let's not waste my time, I've got a lot of properties to run, and we need to make this worth my while. All of the red flag statements that always make us cringe and expect the worst. Surprisingly, that was not the case. Izzy made a reasonable deal within our budgetary means, wished me luck, and we got the last central pieces for a Friday night overnight Coen Brothers exterior film shoot in the East Village. Fast forward to my first managing job four years later on Josh and Benny Safdie's heist thriller, Good Time. It would be the movie that made people pay attention to the work I was doing in New York City, and I have a mountain of incredible memories associated with it. The work was hard, but it was another one of those projects where all the right pieces and locations were falling into place, like some form of cosmic cohesion. For the Safties, locations and geography are just as important as the actors they're casting, and that's how they approach location scouting, preferring to incorporate cold scouting and getting a sense of the atmosphere and if an actor will be inspired to live out their story in this location. So while we're scouting our bank location for good time in Elmhurst, we start talking about how we're going to connect the heist and the getaway route to the eventual escape. It's me and a couple of the producers just walking with Josh and Benny around Queens as they poke their heads in and out of locations along Roosevelt Avenue. As we're walking on the other side of the street, underneath the 7 train, they see a gate open to a tight alley and pull open the gate. We can see in the back of the alley, a back door is open to a bar, and you can see one or two people drinking and smoking near the door. This wasn't a wide cinematic alley that we normally think of for filming. It was very tight, cluttered with junk, less than two people wide between two short walk-up buildings in a somewhat of a labyrinth L shape and definitely not cleared with ownership. Josh and Benny light up and realize they can make the connection and that this alley, tied to the back door of the bar and a close-by grocery, rest in peace Mango Rico, would work great to make their escape through a labyrinth of tight New York Queens spaces and alleys. Now, all I have to do is clear all of these locations we just cold scouted. No problem. I walk inside the bar, through the back door into a pretty shady, dim-lit bar to be in at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday, and speak with the owner who's cool with me. He agrees to work with us, but tells me, you better call the landlord because I don't want any problems with him. So he writes the number down on a coaster and hands it to me. I turn around, head back outside to tell the Safties that I still got to clear the building, but the bar is down to play. And so I excuse myself, stepping off to the side to look at the coaster to begin typing the number into my phone. You know how when you enter a number that's already programmed into your phone, the phone tells you who the contact is? The moment I've finished entering the number in my phone, the screen says, call Izzy. This cosmic cohesion was undeniable. What were the odds we'd cold scout this alley owned by Izzy? I was overcome with the spiritual feeling of universal connectivity and knowing it would all work out based on trusting the decisions I made that got me to this point. Thanks for listening. I'm Samson Jacobson, a New York City-based location manager and filmmaker. Stay safe, and as we say, see you on the next one. 
Hello and greetings, everyone, from Northeast Florida. Tom Fallon checking in here. I've been a location manager for about 35 years, and I appreciate Jared inviting me to be part of this austere group of location managers. I happen to know that you have the hardest job in showbiz. Anyway, I started out on a CBS movie of the week with uh, the director was Mark Daniels, who shot more I Love Lucy's and Star Treks than any other director, I'm told. And I went on from there and uh, shot a feature uh, with Brooke Shields called Brenda Starr and then made Pippi Longstocking and uh, Peter Bogdanovich film called Illegally Yours. And um, I've been asked by Jared to tell a specific story about a specific location. So I thought I might uh, talk about the, um, the day that happens to every location manager where you nail it, where the one location that you find is the one that lands a project. So my best um, nailed it day came on a movie called Basic, which starred John Travolta and was um, directed by John McTiernan. Anyway, we got this script in um, about a military base that was supposed to be in Central America someplace. And uh, it came in just after 9-11, which, of course, changed the entire world. I think they had planned to shoot somewhere in Central America. And after 9-11, nobody was about to leave the country, so they had to scramble and find a place. So I get this script from our film commissioner, Todd Rubin, and I read it. And, uh, of course, it involves a military base. So we had shot uh, Ridley Scott's uh, G.I. Jane here at a place called Camp Blanding, where we also shot a Joel Schumacher film called Tigerland. And uh, it was a sad day when we lost Joel, one of the most beautiful humans I've ever had a chance to work with. Anyway, um, we had shot Camp Blanding for G.I. Jane, so we took a look at that. And uh, during a recent round of base closures in uh, the country in the late 90s, we had closed a place called Cecil Field, which was part of our Mayport Naval Air Station. And uh, it had just been turned over from the Navy to the city, so I went out and took a look around there, thought it might have possibilities. Anyway, on the day of the scout, they flew McTiernan and the producer, Michael Tadros, into Central Florida and took a look at some of the uh, places down there. They, there was a closed military base and probably some air parks and industrial parks. And none of it looked like a big military base to uh, McTiernan. And he was starting to get pretty aggravated as they drove around in central Florida. Then they drove up to north Florida. And two hours in the car, by the time he got to Camp Landing, uh, McTiernan was already quite aggravated. So we drove him around Camp Landing, which was an old World War II training base. And uh, at the end of that scout, he was uh, less happy than he was when he got there. So they all took off. We were going to drive up to Cecil Field in Jacksonville, another half-hour drive. And they fly up there at like 80 miles an hour. And I'm, you know, tracing along in some kind of an old jalopy I had. And I finally catch up to them. And they're driving around Cecil Field, and there's big aircraft hangars there and a bunch of other miscellaneous buildings. 
And uh, he still wasn't seeing it. So they pull over and I pull up behind him and he goes, well, isn't there any place here that looks like a military base? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I know where it is. And uh, they all jumped in the cars and they followed me to this spot that I had found when I had scouted. And it was a big open parking lot and surrounded by this semicircle of barracks, big four or five story barracks, uh, probably about six or eight of them and a headquarters looking building in the center of them. And we all got out of the car and he looked and it went silent for a minute. And then McTiernan turned to Tad Ross and said, okay, we could shoot the movie here. And of course, you know, that one was about a $40 million feature. It was a big deal for our area, our neck of the woods. Uh, it's nice getting a big brand name feature in like that. So I was very proud of myself that day. And um, those are the kind of days you have. Some days don't quite work out that well. I had a scout in town for a movie that took place in Washington, D.C., and I spent the morning scouting with the director and the producer, and by lunch, they were booking their tickets to leave town. So some days don't quite work out. But anyway, it's been fun chatting with you. Um, I really appreciate all of your stories that you're telling on Jared's podcast here, and uh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Come to North Florida sometime. Have a good one. Bye. My name is Wes Hagen. I am a location manager in the Los Angeles area. Been doing locations 22 years almost now. I've worked in a, a few different states in the in the country, largely in Atlanta and Georgia the last decade, but still working in LA as well. I've worked on a number of shows over the years. I got my start doing some low-budget films, some television shows. I started uh, in the union in 1998 on a TV series called Angel season one um, for Paramount and Fox. I've worked on a number of shows over the years. Um, most recently, uh, I, I did uh, season three of Ozark, done all three seasons of Ozark. But last year I did uh, Ozark season three and uh, also worked on a new TV series for HBO called The Outsider with Jason Bateman as well. I uh, Worked on a number of features, Hidden Figures, Selma, The Accountant, Parental Guidance, Million Dollar Arm. If I were to talk about a single location that I've used in recent years that is interesting and unique in itself, I would have to say it was on The Outsider. In 2019, we spent multiple months prepping and shooting and uh, striking a natural cave formation in the state of Alabama, not far from the border of Tennessee near Chattanooga. This cave was privately owned and um, had been offline and on a private property for decades, not operational, hadn't been operational as a tourist attraction since probably the 80s. And the family that owned it had kept it in the family, obviously, on their land. And, uh, you know, we were on a hunt for our creepy character in The Outsider, The Outsider himself, where his lair ended up being at the end of the story, where he went to uh, kind of hide out. The director really was, and the creators actually all, were very adamant about trying to find a realistic location, a real cave that was filmable. We looked at a number of caves all over that region, which is called the 
tag system, uh, the Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia cave system, which is one of the most massive systems in the United States, if not the most. This cave was part of that system in, in some roundabout way, and uh, we stumbled upon it just scouting, talking to locals. One of our scouts was out in that neck of the woods and met the family that owned this cave. Uh, his name was Roy and his son, John, and they ended up becoming a large part of our team uh, while we were shooting in Alabama, obviously, as experts in the cave world, they, they knew their own cave very well. The last couple episodes of Outsider had, you know, quite a bit of work in the cave. And we spent a good month and a half prepping for bringing a large crew into this cave. And uh, we did so without any incident. So it was a, it was a large undertaking. Putting a, ca- a crew, a film crew in a cave was a unique challenge, I gotta say, and uh, it took uh, a small army of us to prep that cave and get it ready. But um, the end result was was really worth it. You know, it it, sh- it looked great on film. Everybody was happy. HBO couldn't have been happier. Um, filmmakers couldn't have been happier. And the actual property owner had a great experience with us as well. So it was a win win for everyone. The cave is on the show. I don't believe you could probably find reference to it online but uh it was uh, a really interesting place and probably one of the most unique places i've ever had the opportunity to film in in as far as locations go and i've shot in a number of different locations including a decommissioned um, wind tunnel at lockheed martin that no one had ever shot um, for hidden figures so but i gotta say this cave took the cake it was uh it was quite an experience and uh we learned a lot in the process of uh, doing this. Hi, I'm Beverly Visitation, location manager from Miami. I've been a location scout and manager for nearly 30 years. Projects I've worked on include a Harmony Corinne film, The Beach Bum, with Matthew McConaughey and Snoop Dogg, War Dogs, a Todd Phillips film with Jonah Hill, Miami Vice the Movie, directed by Michael Mann, Bad Boys 2, directed by Michael Bay. I was also the location manager on the TV show Burn Notice for six years. And when I'm not on feature, I work lots of commercials. The location I want to tell you about was from the James Cameron movie True Lies. I was hired on True Lies as an assistant and part of the location team in the Florida Keys. Specifically, I concentrated on the scene on the old Seven Mile Bridge. We were sent to the Keys maybe six months in advance of the crew arriving, and I imagined I would quickly get the permit for the bridge and spend the rest of the time sipping margaritas and waiting for the trucks to arrive. But that was early in my career, and I was green. What we were actually asked to do was quite unbelievable, and I was never sure we could get it done. The old Seven Mile Bridge was the original railroad bridge to the Keys. Once the new Seven Mile Bridge was built, parts of the old bridge were dismantled. There were large gaps in the bridge which allowed boats to freely cross the area. But in order to film the dramatic scene where Arnold arrives by helicopter and pulls Jamie Lee Curtis from the sunroof of the vehicle before it crashes into the water, a portion of the bridge had to be rebuilt. And so it was. 
They actually reconstructed and replaced the missing bridge section. I was suddenly in the world of filmmaking that left me awestruck. The coordination for the work ahead involved city, state, federal permits, and of course working closely with the Department of Environmental Protection. And since there's only one road in and out of the Keys, we had to find creative ways to keep people engaged when we shut down the road. Hot dogs, Cokes, and a sticker saying that you've been stopped by the Omega sector helped. The landing of the Harrier jets on the old Seven Mile Bridge was pure movie magic. We were advised that the heat of the Harrier jets could actually melt the asphalt of the bridge. So before they could land, a special aggregate was brought in and the resurfacing of a portion of the bridge began. Once the bridge was cured, the entire cast and crew was asked to do a FOD walk. That stands for Foreign Object Debris. So there we were, all of us, actors and crew. There were grips, electric, special effects, everyone walking together, looking down and picking up the smallest pebbles to clear the surface. There are endless stories about the scenes that took place on that bridge. But to me, it was an eye-opening experience that anything was possible. And I wanted to be a part of it. When I drive to the Keys and cross the Seven Mile Bridge, I'm reminded that that location was the real beginning of my adventures in film. Thank you, Jared, for getting in touch with me, and um, stay safe, everyone. Bye. My name is Fabio Arbor. I am a producer and line producer based in South Florida. I work nationally and internationally as well. My background before becoming a producer was as a location manager on the television series Miami Vice. I location managed from season two to season five, having been promoted from a PA on the show. Other features that I've location managed are Perez Family, Happiness, and I also uh, location managed specific locations and stunt scenes for Bad Boys 2, which was uh, pretty intense. But I did enjoy it. We had to shut down major portions of downtown Miami, major chase scenes. It was pretty exciting. And that job ended for me working 17 straight days before I had to start production, production supervising another project. Other TV series that I have location managed are 21 Jump Street and Wise Guy. On the Showtime movie Scam... Uh, this was around 1992. I was gaffing a rehearsal at a house location with Lorraine Bracco and Christopher Walken. They both walked in, introduced themselves, and Mr. Walken said to me, you have a beautiful house. I laughed and I said, I'm the location manager. This is not my house. And he looked at me and said, good choice. I still enjoy to this day, thinking back on that moment, um, working on that project, and also having the opportunity to have a small speaking part in it. The director, John Flynn, wanted me um, to do it, and it's a great memory. Working on Miami Vice was great on-the-job training because the show was so stylized and the look was so important that it set a baseline for me in realizing what locations can do for a story both as a location manager and then as a producer 
regardless of if the show is fiction or reality or a docuseries. One of my favorite location experiences was while location managing season two of Sequest DSV that was on NBC. Um, it was based in Orlando, Florida, and uh, it was during the 1994-95 season. The show took place around 2018, and so I had to find locations that looked futuristic, that were edgy, that had this otherworldly look based on viewing it in 1995, but also having a familiarity to it, just a lot more advanced. We were looking for a location that would take place in an underwater colony, and I pushed passionately the Florida Southern College campus in Lakeland, Florida. A good portion of this college was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and also uh, one or two of his protégés. So to me, it was the perfect location to use as this underwater colony. The director looked at it. I showed him pictures and he was like, well, I'd like to see other stuff. So I showed him maybe around 15 other locations, but still promoting Florida Southern for the episode. That's how much I believed in it. Finally, he said, yeah, let's take a look at it. We looked at it. He loved it. And it worked great. Um, I was really proud of that episode because of how it looked on the show for the story. And I think till this day now, you look at it, and because of the Frank Lloyd Wright architecture, it's sort of timeless, and it still works. The episode was called Sympathy for the Deep, and to this day, I'm glad I stuck to my convictions on how that location would work for the episode. Hello, my name is David Rumble. I'm a location manager uh, based in Royal Oak, Michigan, a suburb just outside of Detroit. I've been doing it 18 years. Um, I've worked on a few of the Transformers movies, The Avengers, Batman vs. Superman. And I think one of my favorite stories and places that I filmed, I would say, was Flint, Michigan, um, a city that's been in the news quite a bit in the last couple of years, um, not for filming, but for problems with their water. But um, in 2007, uh, we had shot a movie there called Semi-Pro, which was a Ken Alterman movie with uh, Will Ferrell and Woody Harrelson and Andre 3000. And um, I was working for a location manager named uh, Gerard Averill. You know, the movie was set in the 1970s in the American Basketball Association. So we basically turned all of Flint into 1970s looks and storefronts and the amount of colorful characters I had to deal with really made me feel like I was just a character in a movie about a movie being made in a kind of small town. Everything from, you know, when I first got to town, the Visitors and Convention Bureau guy, uh, Jerry Preston, who was really helpful for opening doors for me had told me, you know, you got to go check out this, uh, this, this torch bar. They got such great burgers. It's a, it's in an alley. And I was thinking, ah, I don't know. I don't know about eating at a hamburger place in an alley. That sounds weird. So anyway, I went and checked it out and there's still to this day, it's one of my favorite hamburger places. One of my probably three that I've ever had. And, um, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I was probably eating, burgers and fries there three to four times a week the couple months that I was on that movie. 
then, you know, I had a meeting at the mayor's office where they had said, listen, like, you should go down to the reelect, uh, the mayor, you know, office, because there's these guys there that can help you, Bugsy and Joe. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means, but I'll go check it out. So I drive down there and it's just gigantic. It, this room was probably like 10,000 square feet. And there's nobody in there other than this, these two guys chain smoking cigarettes at this table, like in the center of this room, this office. It's big office floor that's just empty other than these two guys. I introduce myself, tell them what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we, we could definitely help you. Like, you know, if you, um, you know, if you run into any obstacles, let us know. Like if somebody doesn't call you back. I said, as a matter of fact, you know, I've been leaving several messages with the uh, the chief of police who won't call me back. I said, it's been a couple of weeks. I've not heard from him. And they said, okay, yeah, let's, let's see what we can do. So I left and like the door to the place closed. And before I got to my car, my phone was ringing. It was the chief of police. Like it was that instant that these guys had the chief call me, you know, then, you know, filming, we just had all kinds of you know, these crazy stories, like the special effects was using some kind of fake snow because it was set in the winter and we were shooting in May. We were fake snow and everything. But for some reason, this stuff was catching grass on fire in places. And one of the places it catches the grass on fire is a clandestine FBI office where like we can't get inside to tell the people because it's high security. There's cameras all over the place and come to find out that's what. And then when they came out, they're like, it's cool. Don't worry. I'm expecting them to be totally mad at us and screaming. And instead, they're like, don't worry about it. It's cool. Like, it's cool. Just basically just leave. And uh, come to find out it was an FBI office. And then you know, one of my first days in in Flint, I had gone to a place called Brown Sugar Coffee. It was at the time the only coffee place in downtown. And I basically told the owner, Julie, like, listen, um, every time I'm going to be working here for the next couple months. And every time you see me walk in that door, just pour me a coffee. And, you know, I'm going to be on the phone and my computer a bunch. And she was totally into it. And then at one point closer to filming, she had told the the Flint Journal, the, the newspaper there, that, yeah, several people from the movie are working here. And I think that, like, increased her business, like, fourfold, at least for the next couple of weeks. Like, I'd go in there, and there'd be two or three people. And after it was in the press that people were working in there, the place was just jamming, which was kind of fun. You know, we had this hot dog place, this really great character that worked at this hot dog place at Coney Island, and um, it was all red, white, and blue. And the movie set in 1976, so this Coney Island looks like night, you know, that looks like the 70s. It hasn't changed in years, and it's all red, white, and blue themed. And I'm like, this is totally, you know, like they 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 kind of are on the fence on whether they want to film there. And this guy could not be more excited about it. And every time I'd go in there, if it was just to eat, because I wasn't going to the torch, I was like, I've just eaten at the torch four straight days let me go to this Coney place. And I'd go in and he'd see me and the whole staff would come over like, do you have news? Like, are you guys just filming here? So I had to stop going there because I never, you know, I wasn't sure if we were going to film there or not. This guy was just so excited about it. And then, you know, the days leading up, they're like, yeah, we think we're going to film there. Like clear it. So I told the guy and he, I'm like, you know, if we decide to film here, you're going to have to get everyone out because it's going to be short notice. And he's like, I'll kick every single person out. Like, you know, I need 10, 15 minutes tops to get everyone out of the parking lot. He just wanted us there so bad and we never filmed it, which I think every location manager probably has several stories of 
the people that are the most excited about um, partaking in the experience and then not filming there for whatever reason. So lots and lots and lots of fond memories. I was only, I was only on it for a couple of months, but I got to tell you, it was, it was just one of the, the funnest experiences. And every day there was some kind of crazy adventure with some crazy character. And um, I feel there's been few cities that I've worked in that have had been had such a warm welcoming for me and for the film industry. And um, I would love to do another movie up there. Um, that's my story um, about Flint, Michigan. I hope you enjoy. Bye. Hi, I'm Dow Griffith. I work internationally as a motion picture location manager, but my professional 45-year career began with the movie Carrie in 1975 with Brian De Palma. I was also the location manager on The Jerk, where it was such a pleasure to work with the late producer Peter McGregor Scott, Steve Martin, and the late and great Carl Reiner. By the way, nobody was ever late on that set. In fact, everybody was so prepared that we finished every day early And I learned the difficulty of moving the schedule up instead of back. But that's not what I want to talk about this time. I also worked with Steven Spielberg and Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy on Always, the Indiana Jones franchise, and Arachnophobia. And it was on this latter project that I first encountered one of the most impressive locations of my career. In 1989, one of my assignments on arachnophobia was to find a remote, exotic, tropical location where it would be believable that an unknown species of a arachnid would be discovered. I started in Mexico and worked my way south until I hit Venezuela. I'd heard about an infamous area that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote about in The Lost World, which later inspired the movie franchise Jurassic Park that Spielberg filmed a couple of years later. This amazing area was called La Gran Sabana, and it's situated on the borders of Guyana, Brazil, and Venezuela. It's accessible by river if you have the time, but there's also a series of landing strips in remote settings. Russian biplanes and antique fire-breathing DC-3 planes occasionally service the indigenous Pomon Indian villages and the one true tourist attraction for the adventurous-minded Angel Falls. At 3,212 feet, it's the tallest continuous flowing waterfall on Earth, and it's named after an American pilot, Jimmy Angel, who crashed there searching for a pot of ore. This all sounded the height of adventure to me, and I wanted to see if it rang true and if it would read on the big screen. So, in a Caracas bar, I met a military helicopter pilot who offered to take me deep into the Orinoco River Basin jungle to have a look. The Orinoco is one of the longest rivers in South America, so we had a lot of ground to cover. The Orinoco source was just discovered in 1951, so what I was proposing to explore was practically virgin territory to me. True, the Orinoco was glimpsed by Columbus in the late 1400s, and in the 1500s, Sir Walter Raleigh sailed it and wrote about it in a, as the El Dorado, land of gold. And pink dolphins swam there and were thought to seduce women and impregnate them. I wanted to travel in all their wakes. So many rivers, so little time. I targeted a major tributary, the Caroni, which would lead me deep into the lost world. 
My pilot had access to fuel stashed every two hours of flight time at various remote landing strips. So as we took off in the Bell Jet Ranger helicopter, I saw civilization disappear through the window beneath my feet. And it was replaced by an endless jungle canopy. My pilot couldn't resist pointing out that if we were to go down or crash, the jungle canopy would close up behind us and we'd never be seen again. <laughs> Thanks. But it didn't matter to me because I was suitably entranced by the beauty and majesty we were exploring. Bright jungle birds raced all over the canopy with us. Random trees bloomed colorfully. Steam rose from the trees, diffusing the light. It was beautiful. Ahead lay what I was searching for, tapuis. This is a term translated by the Pamon Indians as house of the gods. These tapuis were steep and high and captivating tabletop mesas that created their own weather systems and contained life forms not found anywhere else on earth. They'd been isolated for more than 135 million years, towering up to 10,000 feet high with sheer cliffs. We visited Roraima, Kukanan, Chimanta, and Ayantapui, where Angel Falls pours out and drops, among many other waterfalls nearly as high. This was it, in my mind. But could I convince the production team it was worth the challenges of working in such an uncertain location? That's the question. After I'd made the pitch... The day did come when I arranged for the team to visit La Gran Savannah to get their reaction. To help our director and producer Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy appreciate the drama of the location, I gave the helicopter pilot special instructions. I had the pilot fly us low over the Canaima Lagoon and pop up over the Canaima Falls to reveal La Gran Savannah suddenly in all its splendor with Ayantapui looming and cascading waterfalls coming down like some dream landscape. There was an audible gasp in the helicopter. That cinched this location for our movie, and we even used it uh, the title credits as well. The crew enjoyed going to work in dugout canoes with the local Pomone Indian guides, and we were housed in huts on the shores of the Canaima Lagoon, which, although pristine and clean, was the exotic color of bourbon due to the vegetation. The entire experience was fantastic. I thought about changing my credit to uh, vacation manager from location manager. I've taken three feature films in total to La Gran Sabana, Arachnophobia, Jungle to Jungle, and Dinosaur, which enabled me to bring back dinosaurs to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's imagined lost world. I tried to use this area again later for an Indiana Jones sequel in 2007, but by then it was unrealistic to make such a feature film in the country of Venezuela. Too bad. What a loss. I've loved many of the 340 regions of the world I've worked in, the Arabian Desert, the skeleton coast of Namibia, the lush hill country of Southeast Asia, the wilds of Alaska, the diversity of China, and the isolated beaches of Oceania. But it is La Gran Sabana that comes first to my mind when people often ask, what is the most amazing place you've ever visited? Thanks, Dal, for that. Uh, it was just great hearing about finding that exotic jungle location from arachnophobia. It's super cool. One of my 
one of my favorites. Love that movie. Uh, I first actually got in touch with Dow back in 2015 when I was doing a photo essay of romantic movie filming locations to coincide with Valentine's Day. Uh, and I inquired about the location from the scene in The Jerk in which Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters performed Tonight You Belong to Me. And he confirmed that uh, it was the beach at Leo Carrillo State Park in Malibu, which is easily one of the most filmed beaches in movies and television. I want to thank all my guests for taking the time to record and send these stories. It never ceases to amaze me what you all do to elevate the impact of the projects you're working on. And if you listeners are interested in checking out some of the other things we've been doing during uh, the pandemic, uh, you can check out a recent article I wrote for Los Angeles Magazine about Stage 16 at Warner Brothers and its relationship with the Goonies. Uh, Stage 16 is one of the tallest sound stages in the world, been used in things like the Goonies, Ghostbusters, My Fair Lady, Jurassic Park, loads of other uh, great movies, and some television, too. And I was lucky uh, to interview director Richard Donner and Rick Carter, who was the art director on The Goonies, and is now, of course, a highly accomplished and Oscar-winning production designer. You can find that article at lamag.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and joining us on location. Bye for now. Awfully different without you don't get around much anymore. Don't get around much anymore. Don't get around much anymore.